This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, February 8th, 2024. I'm Caleb Brown. Estonia is a small country that was beset by many problems for a very long time, not the least of which was Soviet rule for decades. Estonia is now prosperous and relatively free, and it may offer some powerful lessons to countries recovering from authoritarianism. Matthew Mitchell is co-author of the new book, The Road to Freedom, Estonia's Rise from Soviet Vassal State to One of the Freest Nations on Earth. We spoke last month. So the Estonian people are some of the oldest ethnic communities in Europe. It's a very ancient culture built around uh, music, um, built around fishing and small farms. But they are at this crossroads, literally at, at a crossroads, uh, ancient north, south, east, west trade routes. And because of this crossroads, they have this history of constantly being subject to either voluntary or involuntary exchange, constantly invaded from east and west, north and south. And so there are people really who, though they had this cultural identity, they hadn't started to think of themselves as a real country until quite recently. So, you know, the way we put it in the book is they're an old people, an ancient people uh, in a young country. So it wasn't until 1920 that in the chaos of the Russian Revolution that the Estonians actually asserted their independence and gained their seat at the table of nations and, and were their own country. As, as an independent country, it only lasted 19 years before the Soviets uh invaded. And during this time, they were a relatively prosperous people. I say relatively because I don't want to oversell, and I don't want to oversell that it was a beautiful democracy. Uh, towards the end, under um, the President Pats, they were sort of creeping towards authoritarianism. But it was certainly a far uh, significantly better than it had been under the czars, and um, significantly better than it would be under the Soviet Union. So under Soviet control? What was life like for the average Estonian? Yeah. So I think maybe one place to start is right in the home, because this was where the bizarre Soviet experiment of uh, communal living took place. And the idea here is if you had a house that or a dwelling in which the inhabitants had more than nine square meters, that was considered illegal. And your home was then divided up and strangers came to live with you. If you were deemed to be potentially dangerous to the state, uh, what does that mean? Well, um, if you were engaged in cosmopolitan activity like stamp collecting, <laughs> uh, you know that was considered a danger to the state. Then it's quite possible that KGB agents or the predecessor, the NKVD, they would be put in the home with you. Um, so you had to share a space with other families. Um, people are you know, listening in on you all the time. There was a constant threat of deportation. There were two major deportations. Um, one was urban during the one year in which the Soviets had control before the Germans invaded. Uh, people were rounded up, put on uh, cattle cars and sent to what they called the happier East, um, where they were sent to slave labor camps if they were men, or they were sent to Siberia to be marooned if they were uh, women or or children. Families, of course, were separated. So it was a very dangerous and very scary sort of environment. Uh, the second deportation happened much later, it was 1949. That was concentrated in the rural communities. And in this one, it was a tool to force people onto collective farms. Uh, 
So having learned nothing from the terrible calamity of the the Soviet famine and the Ukraine famine, Stalin was still insistent on collectivizing Estonian farms. But the Estonians, they didn't share the vision. They were proving rather reluctant to join these collectives. And so as a way to uh, incentivize them, uh, in one night, the Red Army and the AK NKVD agents rounded up about 14% of all Estonian farmers. They put them on um, American-made Studebaker trucks and again, sent them uh, to the happier East. And then instantly, everybody else pretty much agreed to join uh, um, the farms. Uh, collectivization now looked like a much better option than the alternative. So this is sort of what life is like you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. You're being forced to make this choice between separating, separated from your family and sent East, or agreeing to have strangers into your house, or agreeing to uh, divvy up your farm and join a collective. It was, it was a very stark and, and difficult choice for a lot of Estonians. You know, we're we're talking about this for uh, the lessons that Estonia can provide, uh, and I don't mean to jump around too much, but you know, in in the in the seventies and eighties, these I don't mean to undersell it, but these were not the darkest times for the Soviet Union, right? I think it's true that the repression certainly changed over time. After Stalin died, it took a very different course. Uh, people were less likely to be arrested. However, they were more likely to be visited by the KGB. Instead of just arresting people in the night, the KGB actually would pay a visit to you, let you know you were being watched, um, and sort of tell you to, to whip it in line or else uh, you'd be in trouble. At the same time, they abandoned the long-standing idea of repressing uh, consumption. So, you know, we think about the Soviet Union as a place where um, there was rampant shortages. And one of this, the reasons for this is that it was a, a accidental byproduct of the incentives of the system, right? You know, it's difficult to get prices right. And if people were, you know, in charge of resources, they could actually profit by withholding those resources, withholding goods from the market, and then selling them on the black market. However, there was also in the early years a, a strategic goal in aiming to limit consumption. They believed that by limiting consumption, they could increase investment and this would allow the Soviet planned economy to actually outpace the capitalist economies. And they did indeed in invest about three times as much as um, the capitalist economies. They just invested quite poorly. So they abandoned that idea really by the 70s. Um, and, you know, you can think about the kitchen debates with with Nixon. Um, uh, you, you can think about the fact that in Estonia, they had access to uh, Finnish TV at that point uh, and radio, even though the Soviets had tried to repress it. And so what happened during that time period is it was basically difficult. The, the, the Soviet leaders decided it's too difficult to try to con contain um, consumption. And maybe we want to uh, increased consumption to show that we have a, a superior system. This was Khrushchev's idea to the capitalists. So they tried to increase consumption. And for a few years, they it, it did happen, but it, the production just couldn't keep up. So 
you know, by the end of the set, by the end of the um, the experiment in the early '90s, late '80s, you still had a situation where Estonian income was one fifth of income across the um, the Gulf of Finland. You still had a situation where Estonians had far fewer cars and television sets and washing machines services. If they even were available, you'd have to wait months for them. It was very bad, you know, to notorious services. They neglected entire sectors. There's a, a great quote from a um, journalist who pointed out that in nowhere in the entire Eastern Bloc could you find sanitary napkins or tampaxes if you're a woman. Uh, they just neglected entire, you know, half of the population uh, because it wasn't important. You know, they were interested in, in uh, the space program and they had no trouble producing missiles, but they couldn't produce a tampon. Um, so that's kind of what this, the, the way the way the system was at the time. And that that speaks quite a bit to lived experience under Soviet rule, which is basic needs go unfilled. At what point did the, the Soviets decide, and I'm inferring this based on a few of the, of the many charts that you uh, produce here uh, in your book, I notice uh, that uh, Jim Gwartney, who just passed away, was uh, uh, the source of, of a lot of the data that you uh, cite here in the book. And uh, I, I note that at some point, uh, wealth in Estonia before the end of the Soviet rule was quite a bit higher than it was in Russia. Yes, this is true. So the the old Estonian joke here is how many five-year plans will it take uh, before the standard of living in Estonia is reduced to that of Russia? Um, and part of the reason why they told this joke is that the Soviet strategy with Estonia was to Russify Estonia or Sovietize Estonia. They believed that the Estonians were sort of inferior. They didn't understand socialism. They weren't going to, they, they were obviously hadn't perfected it as well as the Russians. And so the Russians were going to teach them how to be good socialists, how to be good productive citizens. And so they, as part of this, they, they, you know, specifically brought in people from the other parts of the the empire, but especially from Russia, to try to teach them and they put them in, in positions of power. And the the end of the joke is, it never happened. They they never managed to reduce Estonia to the level of um, income of, of the Russians. Estonians were always a little bit wealthier than, or really the, the wealthiest of all of the Soviet states. So what accounts for that? How should we understand that? Because Estonia is a small country, and I, I'm just wondering, what are the various factors that contributed to Estonians figuring out how to maximize, in a way, that effectively defied their rulers. Yeah, so there's a couple of, of ways we can speculate on this. Of course, uh, you know, with any kind of economic history, uh, you, you can't rerun the experiment. You can't, uh, you don't have controls. Nor uh, would you want to. I, uh, no, you wouldn't, exactly. But uh, it seems to be a number of factors probably contributed. One, they, were, they had that 20-year experience of a budding capitalist country, and they had developed really an entrepreneurial spirit at that time. Even under the Soviet system where you have kind of fixed income across the, the provinces, what could happen is you, you would be eligible for more bonuses if you were more productive. Um, and also if you, you had a you know greater mix of productive industry because compensation was different from industry to industry, that allowed you to be more productive. So I think that past has something to do with it. I think the culture has something to do with it. I think proximity to the West has something to do with it. You can see the skyline from across the, the 
the, the Gulf of Finland, uh, you, you can see uh, the West from Tallinn. And so that proximity allowed a fair amount of trade, uh, some of it illicit, uh, between the East and the West. There's this large diaspora of Estonians who tried to help Estonia as much as possible. And then the proximity um, over the longer run the proximity allowed the Estonians more freedom because the Russians essentially, the Soviets essentially wanted to turn it into a shop window to the West. They knew that this was you know, the way the West would interact with the Soviet empire. And so they did permit greater economic and even uh, social freedom in Estonia. Uh, and they did permit greater investment there as a way to sort of show off their, their system. Oh, so it was these, Estonia was something of the Soviet Union's like Potemkin village? Exactly. That is to say, we're, we're showing you something that uh, look at how happy everyone is. Exactly. Exactly. Estonia was part of the Soviet empire proper. Countries like Poland were not. They were puppets, as you say. Mm -hmm. So give me a sense of what was going on in, in those two countries. Poland and uh, Estonia do not touch each other, but they are nearby mm -hmm. uh, relatively. Uh, what was the state of play for those countries in 1989? And what did the fall of the Berlin Wall bring in, in? And feel free to use a timeline if you need to. Sure, sure. So Poland is really where the first cracks in the Soviet empire start to appear. Finally, Marx's dream of a labor-led revolt uh, was realized, except uh, the one detail that it was a revolt against uh, Marxism, not against capitalism. And so that really started in 81. It looked like it was crushed in 81, in the long December night of, uh, I think, December 14th, 1981. But at the time when uh, Lech Walesa was arrested in, in Poland, he said, this is the last nail in the communist coffin. You've made a grave mistake here. And it might have looked like he was wrong, but he actually was right. It it just took a few, took the rest of the decade to kind of realize it. But what happened was it, Gorbachev proved much more willing to, to let the puppet states go than he did to let the actual dissolution of the Soviet empire happen, of uh, the Soviet Union. And so while everybody was celebrating the fall of the Berlin Wall and the opening up uh, in Poland and uh, the reforms of Leszek Balcerowicz um, in Poland, and it looked very exciting, you still had the Baltic states that were behind the Iron Curtain, and you had Gorbachev still denying that they had ever been forcefully annexed. He was, you know, still saying that it was, quote, a, a marriage that they had chosen to enter the Soviet Union. And so I think a lot of the, the folks in the Baltic states sort of felt left behind uh, and sort of felt ignored. Uh, and so they had a number of ways of getting the attention, the world's attention. And they were very creative ways, actually. One of them was what's known as the Baltic Way or the Baltic Chain. So two million people on the anniversary of the Soviet Nazi pact on August 23rd, I think it was 1987, held hands in a, I think, 670 kilometer ch human chain across three countries, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, to protest the annexation, the illegal annexation of the, of the 
those states. Now, what they were doing was not just a publicity stunt, and it was that. I mean, they had they they arranged to have uh, t- Western TV cameras and and uh, helicopters there, but it was also a legal point because they recognized that if the secret protocols of the Soviet Nazi pact could be recognized, which they were still being denied, then the entire fiction of Estonia being a part of the Soviet Union would be exposed and they could be free. So Gorbachev did not react particularly uh, well to this. You know, he said that they were being hysterical. He said that they need to rein it in. He he sort of called the um, communist leaders in uh, Estonia to task. And he said, you have to understand we're willing to talk, but it's we got to look for a solution within socialism. And ultimately what happened is uh, the Estonians took advantage of the failed coup against Gorbachev in 1991 to declare their own independence. Um, so really it's much like the way they, they declared their independence from uh, the czarist Russia in 1920 in the chaos of, uh, in the midst of Russian chaos, they use that as an opportunity to gain their own independence. Uh, and we also have to talk about the, so the the singing revolution. That's a big part of the story here, too. So Leszek Balsarowicz, as you uh, mentioned in Poland, was a key figure in, I don't know if you want to call it, uh, t- tearing down the architecture of control uh, and not really building that much to replace it. Um, and, and however nervous that might have been at, 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 a to- at that time in Poland to essentially free prices and uh, allow people to buy and sell as they saw fit, uh, it was also something that it's the kind of thing that you wish you had a time machine to go back and experience this uh, awakening of markets in a, in a time and place. And uh, so uh, and, and Poland was highly successful. Uh, following that, what did that do uh, for Estonia just a couple of years later? So I do think it, you know, it started to, it, it was a good lesson for Estonians. Uh, they could see that the countries that had pursued the Washington consensus more vigorously and and uh, were willing to go down that path quicker than others were more successful. And so there was a you know strong appetite in Estonia to essentially whatever had been the Soviet experiment, they wanted to go in the opposite direction as fast as they could. Um, because for all of the Soviet efforts to make Estonia into a shop window, it never worked in terms of the popularity of the system. It was always one of the least contented of the Soviet states. And so uh, by the time they gained their independence, there was very strong constituency for uh, moving as far away from socialism as they could. And so that's where Mart Lahr comes into the story. Uh, and I, I, I can't get out of my head the image of him wearing sort of like an acid-washed jean jacket uh, in, in like official <laughs> press events. Uh, when he can, and he's, uh, Mart Lahr's a historian. He's, uh, he's, he's, not, he's not someone you think of. He's not the kind of, he doesn't seem to have the resume that you would think of as somebody to usher in a, uh, an economic revolution. That's right. So there's a couple of important things here. So, you know, first of all, he had been involved uh, in the in the 1980s with the resistance movement. And being an historian, that is important because he formed the uh, Estonian Historical Society, 
with the aim of telling the truth about Estonia's history, both celebrating its past and uh, you know its independent years, but also talking truthfully about what had happened in August 23rd, uh, 1929, and how they had been dragooned into the Soviet Union. So that's where he comes from. And then he, as you say, you know, he finds himself in power, and he's this 32-year-old guy. He's you know a big fan of Guns and Roses and uh, Phil Collins and you know all the popular music at the time. He was I think quite happy to have the the Western press you know point this out. He had members, several other members of his parliament were in their 30s or or even in their 20s. So they're really kind of led by uh, these young folks. Now, Lar will say he's not an economist. In fact, I think there's a famous quote like I'm Mart Lar and I'm not an economist. Uh, but he during the Soviet time had heard about the name Milton Friedman. And the reason he'd heard about it is from Soviet propaganda. And it, as so often seemed to happen in Estonia, whenever they were told by the leaders that something was bad, then uh, Estonians thought, well, that must be good. And so he'd heard this, this name of this terrible economist, this awful villain, Milton Friedman. And he thought, well, if, if the Soviets hate him so much, I think I should try to get a hold of some of his books and read them. So he had, he had read Friedman and He's really unassuming guy. He'll say, you know, I'm no economic economics expert. I was naive enough to think that this was just standard economics. And so I just thought, well, that's what we do. Uh, and so that's what he did. So, you know, Friedman had suggested things like a, a flat tax. So under Lars government, they imposed the world's first flat tax. Uh, it ended up being a very innovative flat tax. It's it's a uh, applies to both personal income as well as business income. And it's only on distributed profits. Uh, so it's a distributed profits tax, actually. Uh, so it's pretty that's that, that's an interesting part uh, to it. He also instituted complete unilateral free trade unilateral free trade. That's a very unusual. Right. That's the dream, right? Yeah. Weird. <laughs> it's, this just doesn't happen. Yeah. Jeff Sachs and uh, Warner have this paper in the early 90s that points out the, the role of free trade is, is really uh, important in a transition economy because it's a down payment on further reforms. Once you expose your businesses to competition from abroad, you better make sure that your businesses have the economic freedom to survive. It's a down payment on everything else. Uh, before Lar even swore an oath and, and uh, took office, they had already instituted another important reform, which was monetary reform. They tied themselves to the Deutschmark um, and had a currency board, You know, one of the most ambitious ways to do that. Uh, a lot of these reforms, by the way, were not recommended by the West. Uh, the IMF on the currency board, they said, uh, you know, that seems a little dangerous. I don't think you should do that. On the uh, flat tax, they said it's too soon, too fast. And Estonia just went ahead with it anyway. Uh, on the currency board, uh, the IMF ended up later recommending that same reform to other states, uh, to other countries. So just, you know, liberalization across the board, uh, really uh, one of the smoothest privatizations that happened. And one of the ways they did that is that they just prioritized prior proofs of ownership. So there's stories of, you know, widows going into their backyard, digging up a tin can in which they had the papers that proved that they had owned their business before the Soviets came in, took it down to the local government and said, here's my business. And the local government said, yep, that's your business. One of uh, Lars' sayings, is, and he, he says he learned this from Margaret Thatcher, is uh, just do it. If you've got something difficult that needs being done, don't just stand there trembling. Just get it done. It's never going to be easier. And it's true. I don't want to claim that this was easy. Um, there were a lot of hardships in the transition. But if it has to be done, you might as well just do it. If the alternative is remaining effectively 
a country with Soviet economic policy that just do it seems like a pretty rational response. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. So, it, it, you know, it, that was more than 30 years ago. And we're coming up on 35 years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The uh, Human Freedom Index has been uh, producing uh, for several years, but they have data going back to 2000. Uh, in 2000, according to the Human Freedom Index, which my colleague Ian Vasquez is uh, responsible for, they were ranked 23 in overall human freedom. Now, this is multiple different dimensions of freedom. Right. In 2020, they were third. So the the tr- that transition in the in the early 90s, however substantial it might have been, you would expect there to be some sort of leveling off. You would expect there perhaps to be uh, a retrenchment of of some kind, but. It seems that Estonia has, I mean, these are rankings. They're not, these aren't, this is not an absolute measure. So what, what, do you, what do you think accounts for the fact that Estonia has increased its standing uh, in the world when it comes to all of these, these freedoms? So, uh, you know, again, with the caveats earlier that it's, you know, we don't we don't have controlled experiments, so we're speculating a bit here. But I, it seems to me a number of things are important. Uh, one is the uh, thought, I think, quite critically about the order in which things needed to be done. And they really sort of tied themselves to the mast, if you will, in terms of thinking about uh, pre-commitments. So I already mentioned the idea of liberalizing uh, trade first. That was important. Um, Right after the monetary reforms, they got their fiscal house in order. Um, That too is a commitment. You know, if you don't, aren't running, you know, huge deficits, that makes it much easier to maintain a good monetary policy. The, the flat tax was another commitment. You know, once you, once you have sort of created in the public's mind that this is the way taxation goes and we're going to be, we're going to have a flat tax rate and it's going to be half the average rate in the OECD, you sort of build a constituency for that and the public expects that. And it's a broad, broadly shared burden, which you might think, well, that's bad. Everybody's everybody shares this burden, but it also sort of means everybody has a stake in the in the government. They also, on other dimensions, they they sort of pre-committed. So Estonia has the world's first uh, uh, electronic government. So uh, you can, it was the first place in the world and still is more advanced than anywhere else in terms of being able to vote online, register a business online, register your property online. And even in this instance, they have a pre-commitment device. Uh, there's a law that sa- says it is illegal for the Estonian government to ask the same person the same question twice in their lifetime. Uh, so it's, you know, they sort of have these pre- pre-commitment devices. And then I do think it has something to do with the culture, uh, especially, and the e-governance is part of this as well. Mart Lahr was the the prime minister, the president at the time, which is more of a figurehead. He was a much older man, but he was really into technology. He had spent his youth trying to build radios, illegal radios to listen to the West. And so he loved technology. And, you know, he went to go visit the United States shortly after he became president. And um, he told his advisors, he said he was way more excited about meeting Bill Gates than meeting Bill Clinton uh, because he really wanted Estonia to be this technology hub. And 
it ended up being successful. They opened up and they have, uh, you know, more startups per capita than any other country in Europe. They have more unicorns per capita than any other country in Europe. Um, a number of, you know, household names like Skype, uh, you know, the, these are Estonian companies. They built this reputation of entrepreneurship, uh, you know, also building on the on the what they had before in the 1920s and 30s, uh, and they really nurtured it. So the question now for this moment. I mean, Estonia is not out of the woods in a sense, right? They are up against Russia and they are uh, a factor uh, in this uh, war on, on Ukraine. But in terms of uh, Estonia's success and their continued sustained uh, success for over, over 30 years, uh, what lessons does that have for a country like Argentina? Is Javier Millet paying attention? Presumably he is. He is an economist. Um, but also for a country like the United States, uh, you and I have spoken many times about big, old, industrial powerhouses that get their, uh, th uh, the government gets their thumb in that pie and vice versa, and how uh, not particularly innovative they are and how that has a has a drag effect on economic growth. So what you know in in Estonia's case, what are the short, clear, crisp lessons that that a country like Argentina or the u s. could pull and say, yes, clearly, this is the way? Yes. So I mean, I think one of them is, a relatively simple lesson, but it's that economic freedom works. And so the general program of lower taxes, fewer regulations, sound monetary policy, open trade, that's a formula that does work. And we've got over a thousand peer-reviewed academic studies, you know, based on the Economic Freedom of the World Index by the Fraser Institute that, you know, demonstrate this. So it's a maybe simple lesson, but it's uh, that that doesn't make it any less important, and we need to repeat it over and over, especially because you know there's something like fifty uh, percent of twenty four to thirty five year olds think that socialism is a superior system and will outproduce capitalism. So you know we need we we need to keep repeating that lesson as much as we can. Two, I I do think leadership uh, matters. So you know as an economist, this is kind of a weird thing to say since we normally talk about uh, institutions, and I I do think institutions matter as well. But sometimes you also need you need a leader who's willing to stake out a vision, willing to stick to it, willing to make the argument, willing to bring together the coalitions. And so you had Mart Lahr who was willing to do that. And he was willing to do it, again, emphasizing the idea of speed. Of if it's going to be difficult, let's do it quick. I, I think another lesson is honesty. So at the beginning of the uh, transition, as Pete Becky has it in one of his books, you know, the average person in the Soviet Union or in or in Estonia, they woke up and they went to the wrong job in the wrong place <laughs> in the wrong industry. And they had done that for the last, you know, 30 years of their lives. So these are their human capital was not well aligned to be productive. And so you got to be honest about that. And you got to say, look, we face some significant challenges. And so I do think Mart Lahr also deserves credit for that, for just saying, look, we've got, this is not going to be easy by any means. And we're going to have some unemployment and it's probably going to spike and it's going to remain high for a while. Uh, and Lesek Balsarowicz in, in Poland, you know, the same lesson goes there. So Speed, honesty, freedom. Uh, I, I'm not sure what, what what else to say other than you know those things matter. I'm sure culture matters. Uh, it's really difficult. Culture, of course, moves 
much slower time frame than almost anything else. It's glacial. You know, hundreds of years after the end of slavery, we still find that parts of Africa where people were more likely to be predated on than other parts of Africa, there's still lower levels of trust. There's still higher interest rates. There's still less trade uh, and lower per capita GDP. You know, that's a that's a cultural legacy that is centuries long, and it's very difficult to change some of that. So you got to sometimes work with what you have in terms of the culture. Matthew Mitchell is co-author of The Road to Freedom, Estonia's rise from Soviet vassal state to one of the freest nations on earth. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening. <laughs>